Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Good morning. Today is the day the Lord has made. It is Thursday, the 17th of October, 2019. Good morning, good morning, good morning. It's time to rise and shine. Uh, good morning. Thank you for taking us along with you wherever you are going this morning, or whatever part of the country or part of the world you live in, whatever actually part of the day you're listening to this. So, uh, you know, I don't often give a shout out to the people who listen via podcast, but hey, hey, we know you're out there. We thank you for uh, downloading the program and listening at various and sundry times of the day and night. And um, we just genuinely want you to know we appreciate you. Okay, so uh, yesterday was President Trump's 1000th day in office. Um, And that got me thinking. That got me thinking about what gets chronicled, what gets remembered, um, what historians actually um, take note of in terms of decisions made, things said that actually have an enduring legacy, an enduring impact. Because you and I tend to get uh, very caught up in uh, you, what used to be a 15-minute news cycle uh, or 15-hour or a few days. Like people would be like, oh, don't worry, in a few days this will pass. Well, now it's, you know, oh, don't worry, a few hours this will pass. Or now it's like, mm, you know, uh, it's, it's as fast as a tweet, Right. History is moving as fast as the tweet, tweet storms. Um, yes and no. Things will be chronicled. Things will be remembered. Consider, consider that which the writers of First and Second Kings or the First and Second Chronicles, Chronicles being a good word here, chose to remember. Because the things that they chose to remember are the things that we know and remember about that time period. When you think about what you know about the life of Jesus— when you think about what you know about the history of the people of Israel, when you think about what you know um, about, oh, well, I don't know, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, um, the Romans, many of us know what we know because chronicles, historians, chose to write those things down and not other things. They, They didn't write down everything. And so today people think, oh, well, Everything will be remembered in the future because everything is being literally recorded now. Well, no, that's not true either, because in the future, they won't bother to spend their lives just watching moment by moment, second by second, nanosecond by nanosecond, what we did. Nobody's going to care. I mean, just letting you know right now, they're not going to care. And so we uh, we are satisfying our own sense of uh, self-importance and selfie importance by streaming our lives online as if they, uh, I mean, they certainly matter. Our lives matter. But, you know, let's be mindful of the scope uh, and sweep of human history and our place in it as stewards of God's grace, stewards of God's greatness, stewards of God's gospel, stewards of God's um, creation right now, right now. 
because this is the generation for which we are responsible. This is the day. And I'm going to go ahead and predict that the thousandth, the thousandth, that's hard to say, thousandth day of the Trump presidency, um, which was not a particularly good day for the president, uh, is also not going to, in fact, be a day that historians remember um, as particularly great. And so um, let's be mindful. Let's be mindful of not what, not just that which, you know, was said in a heated moment by an individual to others, but what is happening to people around the world because of uh, our seeming inability here in the United States to get ourselves together on the same page in terms of what's good and just, not only for us right here, right now, but for others uh, about whom we have deep concern around the globe. All right. Uh, today's today's show is absolutely packed. I'm going to lead off with a conversation with Ben Johnson. He and I are going to talk about human dignity. We're also going to talk about Le- LeBron James. If you don't know who LeBron James is, you're probably not a fan of the NBA. Uh, if you are a fan of the NBA, you certainly know who LeBron James is. And you may be wondering why we're talking about him in relationship to pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Welcoming back Ben Johnson, the rights writer. That's uh, that's his uh, where he hangs out on Twitter. He's the rights writer. You can also find him at Acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. Ben, welcome back. Good morning, Carmen. Good to be with you again. Good morning, sir. Good morning, sir. Let's um, let's talk about fundamental human dignity, because I think that when we have conversations, let's say we you know, let's say we heard the news at the top of the hour and we hear that the governor of California has vetoed a bill related to, um, well, first of all, mandatory ID cards for every student in the entire California educational system and that those ID cards are not only going to have their personal information, which probably is a good conversation to have at some point, but also it's going to have contact information for uh, a Planned Parenthood-related abortion clinic, you know, that's that, that they could access. Now, first of all, I just there's so many layers of conversation we could have there. But when we talk about w- where we are in our culture related to human dignity and our understanding of human life, that's I'd love to have that conversation with you because the confusion is so, so deep. It's deep and profound because the state has taken a, a very definite uh, position here. Uh, rooted in positive law. In the old days, the way that the United States was founded, the understanding was that human dignity is before any political institution because it's given by God. If it's given by God, it can't be taken away from any uh, from anyone based on any government act. No government thought that it was equal to or greater than God. And so the rights that he endows are permanent, inalienable, to use the constitutional and, and biblical, uh, to use the phrase from the uh, uh, from the Declaration of Independence, that these attach themselves to us by their very nature and our nature as human beings, based on Genesis 127, uh, in, in the fact that we've been created in the image and in the likeness of God, uh, 127 and 27. So that was the basis of our common law understanding going back into the mists of history. 
And now the state is saying that it wants to talk to our children about matters fundamental to life and death, to alienate them from their parents if their parents teach something other than what the state approves when it comes to the moment that life begins. And it wants to say that life does not necessarily become an inalienable right until the state says that it is. And in California, that's the moment that you draw your first breath at the very earliest. So there are whole several layers of rights that are being stripped away, the right of a parent to educate his child, the right of people to practice their own religion, and the right of a, 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 a pre-born human child to continue the gift of life that God has implanted. Yeah. So I know that the conversation you and I had planned to have this morning on human dignity is a little bit different than this, but I wanted to start there because I think the human dignity conversation related to life itself um, is one that our minds can, you know, can almost immediately grab hold of. We can we can understand this. You and I are now going to just we're going to take like a I don't know. It's just one step away from that conversation to a conversation about indeed how we have been made. So I think that this next conversation requires, Ben, that people acknowledge um, God is and God has created and God did not make mistakes in creating us as male and female intentionally in his image. And so if we are to accept that, then the conversation about um, transgenderism and the transgender movement um, becomes becomes an interesting one for those of us who are Christians. Well, it really does. The, the case in, in, in point is a 56-year-old physician in uh, the United Kingdom who wanted to work for a government agency diagnosing people with disabilities, and he had just been hired. One of his managers came to him before there was ever any issue and asked what he would do if someone were transgender. And the man had mentioned that he was a Christian. Uh, he said that he believed in Genesis 127, that uh, male and female created he them. And uh, he said specifically that if uh, there were a six-foot-tall bearded man, he would not re refer to that person as a madam. Uh, he, he thought that that was inappropriate. It would be lying, uh, and that would be that. A court in the United Kingdom, uh, uh, there's a dispute about whether he quit or was let go. Ultimately, the government agency decided that he could not continue in that role unless he used the pronouns and the gender identity of the patient's choice. So uh, they found that his beliefs were incompatible with him functioning there uh, if he refused to check them at the workplace door, uh, which is bad for the patients because they already have a doctor shortage. So now they have one doctor even fewer than that. He sued in uh, the courts, and the courts sided with the government, saying that, uh, and this is a quotation from the case, belief in Genesis 127, lack of belief in transgenderism, and conscientious objective, objection to transgenderism are incompatible with human dignity. So belief in Genesis 127 is incompatible with human dignity? That's, that's the basis of human dignity, as, as we just went over. The, the idea that we were created in the image and in the likeness of God has been the cornerstone of our belief in human dignity and in the inalienable rights of every individual from the moment of birth and from the moment of conception even to the moment of natural death, that there are certain boundaries over which the state cannot step. Uh, and it's not simply conservatives who believe this or constitutionalists or regionalists. Uh, Jerry Shestak, who uh, was a human rights official in the Carter administration, went on to be a very, very liberal president of the American Bar Association, led the effort against Robert Bork. Uh, 
said that uh, the fact that the, the fact that we are created in the image of God is is really one of the main reasons that uh, we believe in human rights. He says that uh, the concept of human beings being created in the image of God certainly endows men and women with a worth and dignity from which the components of a comprehensive human rights system can flow logically. So uh, that's the cornerstone, the capstone of our human dignity. And yet, according to the UK, has said that that has to be obliterated. And it's setting itself up as the arbiter of the reasons that we have dignity and in what situations uh, we enjoy those rights. So the uh, the idea that something would flow logically is a whole com- a whole other conversation we could have. Um, I also think that related to this, I mean, uh, you know, Hillary Hillary Clinton, you know, who the left thinks is totally woke on all of these issues. Um, you know, the reality is she she just very openly and publicly confesses. Look, she doesn't even hardly know anything about that. This language is all new to her. Um, she's not comfortable with it. She's growing in her understanding. And so the idea that um, uh, that everybody is fully on board and uh, and is ready to use uh, plural pronouns for people who we obviously recognize are are not plural. Um, it it just it, it's an it's an incredible demand being placed upon all of us by a very very small group of pre- people who are insisting that we see reality in a way that's absolutely contrary to the reality we see. Yes, it's about checking reality at the doorstep. You know, it, yeah, absolutely. It, we, yeah, it's it, it's the emperor's new clothes uh, applied to gender, yeah. and this because it's so transparently wrong, it can't maintain itself except uh, in in the public school system where they have access to students. Tying back into the first part of this conversation, where the government can say and and teach and indoctrinate people. That uh, your your parents may not understand this reality, but you have uh, an understanding that's even greater than them because you were born later. You have greater scientific insight, and they they will be able to play up their vanity as well as to indoctrinate them in these issues. But biology is biology; it's ineradicable, and uh, it cannot it it very simply cannot be changed. So reality doesn't care how uh, individuals happen to feel at a, any given moment. I've shared this statistic in other cases, but uh, uh, there was a a nine-year-old child who asked, a transgender child who asked a question of Elizabeth Warren the other day, and everyone cheered and so on. Studies show between 80 and 98 percent of children who identify with the opposite gender reconcile themselves to their own gender by the time they're 18. So it's an issue that that would work itself out naturally if allowed to in the vast, vast majority of cases. And again, we're talking about a slither of the population that's a few hundredths of 1% of the U.S. population. And yet they have come uh, through, they, they've been sort of the tip of the spear for uh, the social revolution to redefine reality for everybody else. Mm. All right, uh, we got to take a quick break. Um, ineradicable, going to be the word of the day. We'll be right back. Returning to my conversation with Ben Johnson, the rights writer. That's how you can find him on social media at the rights writer. You can also find him at Acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. Uh, ben, you already know this, but other people may not. The U.S. House and Senate are all both advancing bills in support of protesters in Hong Kong. Uh, we have been talking about these pro-freedom, pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong now for months 
um, and there's lots of news related to this uh, that's really extraordinary. Uh, and what the U.S. Congress is doing is actually seeking to rebuke the Chinese government in terms of how they are handling all this. Um, but over the past 48 hours, uh, an interesting figure has emerged in this conversation. Well, I mean, it's interesting that the NBA is now the National Basketball Association. The The NBA is now such a player, literally, in this um, global conversation. Uh, LeBron James um, is now fully, uh, fully engaged in all of this controversy. Tell us, first of all, maybe for those who don't know who he is and why we're talking about LeBron James in relationship to protests in Hong Kong. Yeah, LeBron James uh, had a, I had a front, uh, front row seat in, in a figurative sense uh, to his rise because he's only from about two hours from here. Uh, he, he's a child prodigy when it comes to now basketball. Now you have to give away where you are because like yeah. two hours from here, uh, you know, you could be in the middle of like, I don't know where. So tell people where you are yeah. so they know I, where I'm, two hours I'm in away. the uh, great bellwether state of Ohio and, and that's where he's from. He's from Akron. And um, uh, he was a child prodigy. I mean, just amazing. I think he was the youngest player ever uh, signed up for the NBA and uh, began with Cleveland. He's, he's moved on since then, but we'll, we'll let him have a pass on that. Uh, but just an amazing player. But uh, he's used that platform in order to talk about politics many times, uh, endorsed Hillary Clinton in 2016. He said some very negative things about people who voted for people uh, who voted against her in the past and uh, has weighed in on the uh, uh, Black Lives Matter issue. So he has no trouble weighing in on political issues. But um, they, as your um, listeners may know, there were some protesters at the Philadelphia 76ers game who stood up for the Hong Kong protesters, uh, those who were trying to stand up for Hong Kong's legal rights under their charter with Beijing. They were expelled from the game. Uh, Daryl Morey, who's the uh, owner of the Houston Rockets, gave a really sort of an uh, innocuous tweet uh, favoring the Hong Kong protesters. And there was a huge backlash uh, about this. And so he had to delete that. He replaced it with his tweet where uh, he apologized and so on. But LeBron James entered into the conversation and said that there was uh, a lot at stake here. And um, yeah, he, he, he gave a, a conference where he said, so many people could have been harmed, not only financially, physically, emotionally, spiritually, he said, be careful what we tweet and say and we do, because even though we do have freedom of speech, there can be a lot of negative that comes with that, too. So, first of all, he's, he's sort of questioning the value of freedom of speech, which is a whole conversation to itself. But that's an inalienable right uh, that should never be abandoned, no matter what. And you see you see the NBA. Second of all, he's he's really echoing what uh, he's echoing the party line of the Communist Party of China. That's exactly uh, he, right. Yeah. I mean, uh, the the uh, Chinese uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs spokesman, uh, Gang Chong, uh, said that uh, the bill that's uh, being um, uh, forwarded in Congress, the uh, Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act, fully exposes the shocking hypocrisy of some on U.S. human rights and democracy. So uh, you, you see these two figures trying to uh, line up as though the United States is somehow uh, comparable in the way that it treats human rights to uh, to uh, China. And and uh, so did uh, uh, Steve uh, Kerr, who is a uh, Warriors coach. So so LeBron James of the Warriors, his coach also uh, uh, sort of in Golden State, California, uh, weighing in, saying that the United States is almost equal in its treatment of human rights to what's happening in China. And the fact of the matter is this is all about one thing. It's one rule. It's gold, which is NBA wants access 
to the Chinese market. They've got a huge market, and China has said you will be cut off completely if you don't go along. The NFL, by the way, I just found out my friend David Milroy was telling me uh, just the other day at the Acton Annual Dinner uh, about a story in the Wall Street Journal. The NFL has been banned because of the uh, wardrobe malfunction of Janet Jackson, but it had nothing to do with the reason they should have been banned, which was the malfunction itself. On the big uh, Megatron behind her, they were flashing different photos uh, of, of different events related to freedom. And one of them, for one second, was a protester standing in front of the tank at Tiananmen Square. Mm-hmm. So for 15 years, the NFL has been persona non grata. They have no access to what's going on there. Now, the NBA has no problem asserting itself on uh, transgender issues in North Carolina, moving the, All- the All-Stars game out of Charlotte for two years because of that bill. They have no trouble talking about domestic politics, but that's because we have a free economy and uh, different states compete in order to get the money that comes from them. China has a controlled economy, and so when it comes down to it, they kowtow to the government. Yeah, so we're going to um, we're gonna wrap it up this way with a nice gospel bow. Um, we don't want anybody, uh, neither Ben nor I, want anybody out there to be confused about who the king is. And, and we don't want anybody out there to be confused um, you know, when you when you think about warriors in the culture today, we're not talking about members of the NBA uh, mouthing off about what is happening halfway around the world, about which they obviously have little heart concern and empathy. Um, we are going to be people who are going to advance the King Jesus Christ and His kingdom. We are His kingdom ambassadors, and you know what? Come what may to us, we are going to speak the good, liberating. Um, ultimately liberating good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ everywhere to every people from every platform that God gives us. We'll be right back. Uh, Civil conversation in the culture today is challenging to have. As Christians, we are responsible. We are actually responsible not only to learn how to engage in it, but how to introduce it. And so at the intersection of religious liberty and issues related to life, uh, we're going to talk next with John Inazu. He uh, is the author of Confident Pluralism, and he is also a professor of law. He is uh, up next to talk with us about how we as Christians can better engage the cultural conversations of our day. President John F. Kennedy once said, efforts and courage are not enough without purpose and direction. Hi, I'm Callie Breeze with Thrivent, helping you be wise and thrive. We all live busy lives, don't we? Our days are filled with work, family, friends, and just taking care of our basic needs. But do you ever ask yourself, what is the purpose of all this busyness? I know you want to honor and obey God in all that you do. So how does that translate to your daily activities and plans? Is your busyness getting in the way of your purpose? For starters, ask yourself, are you spending your time, money, and talents on things that enrich your life and lift others? Then make sure your calendar, to-do list, and your bank account line up with what God has called you to do. When you know your purpose, you'll have the courage to obediently go where God leads you, and you'll find you live a more content, confident, and generous life. We believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit and He's given us new life. 
Welcome back. Glad to be joined now by John Inazu. You uh, you will recognize him. Uh, he has been on the program before. He's a professor of law and religion at Washington University in St. Louis. He's the author of Confident Pluralism, Surviving and Thriving Through Deep Difference. John, welcome back. Uh, thanks, Carmen. It's great to be with you. So in response to Beto O'Rourke's comments during last week's CNN uh, Equality Town Hall, you posted a piece um, at The Atlantic that I thought was really particularly helpful. So thank you for joining us today to just talk through this subject matter. First of all, let's remind people um, what Beto O'Rourke, candidate for uh, the Democratic nomination for president of the United States, let's remind ourselves how he responded when he was asked uh, whether or not he thought that religious organizations, including churches, um, who do not support same-sex marriage should lose their tax-exempt status. He responded by saying, yes. That's really the beginning of this conversation. Right. Yeah, just an unequivocal yes to a pretty broad-reaching question about the tax-exempt status of these organizations. And how quickly, uh, I mean, I think that where you start is this is really a dramatic sea change in a fairly short period of time in terms of uh, American culture. So talk about that. Well, yeah, there are a couple of contextual points. The first is that we had as recently as a decade ago, then candidate Barack Obama supporting marriage between a man and a woman and expressing his disfavor for gay marriage. And so we've seen a real shift in the Democratic Party for sure, but also in national polling uh, in the country as well in, in terms of support for same-sex marriage. And I think one of the complications in all of these discussions is when we have broad questions about support, it's not clear from the question itself whether we're talking about legal recognition of same-sex marriage or theological objections to same-sex marriage or different nuances across the board. Um, but clearly, what, regardless of which particular perspective we're talking about, there's been a shift nationally and certainly in terms of the Democratic Party. And so... Um it wasn't just Beto O'Rourke. I mean, is it fair to say that when Joe Biden, former vice president of the United States, you know, says in the same event, hey, everybody up here basically believes on everything, uh, believes, you know, believes the same on everything. Anything that you're going to hear tonight is just going to be, you know, a matter of degrees. Um, is it fair to say that everybody up there um, maybe doesn't go quite as far as Beto O'Rourke went, um, but they're all on the same page in terms of like the Equality Act? I think that seems right from everything I've read. And I, I think one of the, the comments uh, that got O'Rourke in particular trouble was that he included churches among the list of organizations that he would challenge uh, with respect to this issue. And subsequent to the debate, he sort of walked that back and said, I'm not talking about what churches believe. But there are really two problems with the walk back and then similar distancing uh, by other Democratic candidates from O'Rourke's comments. And the first is that the distinction between belief and action is really going to collapse when we're talking about something like a membership requirement for a church or any other religious organization. So when the Democrats say, you can believe whatever you want, you just can't discriminate, as a practical matter for a conservative Christian or other religious entity uh, that has a membership requirement, the belief and the act of exclusion from a membership requirement is going to be the same thing. So it's not a, not really a helpful distinction to say, uh, you can believe what you want. You just can't act on the beliefs since, since most people act on beliefs all the time. The second real problem with the attempted walk back is that churches 
are probably not the core issue here as a matter of policy and as a matter of concern to most people. Uh, there, there is some law out there that would suggest churches have particular protections, and that's probably right, although with respect to the specific issue of tax exemptions, it's not yet clear on that issue. Uh, but the broader issue, I think, are Christian colleges and universities and adoption agencies and social service agencies and really the hundreds of thousands of religious, Christian, and otherwise religious nonprofits that do have these membership-based distinctions in their leadership and do maintain these more traditional views about sexuality. And on that point, every Democratic candidate I've seen has basically uh, said what O'Rourke has said. They would pursue the stripping of tax exemption and the denial of grants and uh, contracts to those types of organizations. Again, my conversation partner is John Anazu. He is the author of Confident Pluralism. He is also a professor at Washington University in St. Louis. John, um, uh, when we think about uh, the comments that uh, that Beto O'Rourke made, he's really um, echoing a, it, the argument made in 2015 in the oral arguments of the Obergefell case. Can you remind us what happened there that's so significant in terms of this conversation? Yeah, and this is a really important point to highlight because I think it's on the mind of, of a lot of Christian at, uh, policymakers and legal advocates, and it's not so much on the mind of uh, more mainstream media. And I think the the difference in perspective is important, and it might cause, I think, the media to miss how significant this issue might be to a lot of Christians. So in the 2015 oral arguments leading up to the gay marriage decision, Justice Alito asked President Obama's Solicitor General, uh, what about uh, this case from the 1980s, Bob Jones University, in which the IRS, the federal government, and ultimately the Supreme Court upheld the denial of tax exemption to a racially discriminatory university in South Carolina and then a number of other uh, educational institutions as well. What about that case? Will that have implications for conservative Christian colleges and universities that have traditional views about sexuality? And the Solicitor General said, yes, this is going to be an issue. So at that moment, and this was covered widely in lots of media at the time, but did not stick around uh, when we got to 20, the 2016 election in most national media, in that moment, the signal from the Obama administration uh, and the top lawyer who argues cases to the Supreme Court was that Bob Jones question whether Christian colleges and universities will keep their tax exemption if they maintain traditional views about sexuality became a a leading issue in a lot of discourse around these kinds of questions. And, and I don't think that question has left the minds of a lot of uh, college presidents and, and boards of trustees and constituents since that time. This recent Democratic debate last week resurfaced that question pretty directly. And, uh, and there hasn't seemed to be much of a walk back on that point. And in, in fact, uh, O'Rourke, a couple days after the debate last week, was asked whether historically Christian uh, black colleges and universities should lose their tax exemption. And he said, yes, they should. So the issue is a live one. All right. My conversation partner is John Inazu. He is the author of Confident Pluralism. Um, in that book, John, you actually address this conversation about tax ex exemption and tax exempt status, and you address it in a really broad way. Like, we are not just talking about Christians here. So help us understand some of the scope of, 
of the conversation related to who is tax exempt um, and and how that applies to this conversation, particularly about doing good. But but before you do that, you and I got to take a quick break. I'm talking to John and Azu. We'll be right back. All right, picking up where we left off, uh, I'm talking with John Inazu. I just posed a question right before the break um, related to sort of the scope of uh, tax exemption in the United States. We're not just talking about churches here. Right. So, I mean, at the broadest possible level, the federal government and the Internal Revenue Code recognize tax exemption for a really wide range of institutions, some religious, some charitable, some educational and the meaning of charitable is really pretty broad in itself. So charitable does not just encompass something like a soup kitchen, but it encompasses a lot of socially oriented organizations. You know, there, a garden club could be charitable or, or a kind of a, the opera as a charitable uh, entity and, and often in many cases. Uh, so really the kinds of things that people do in civil society, whether directly helping others or really fostering uh, internal relationships, all of those organizations can often be deemed charitable. And then uh, religious is also a very broad term and and, uh, includes many forms of religion and many religious organizations, including non-Christian ones. So we were talking about hundreds of thousands of organizations in this country that receive tax-exempt status and the benefits that come with that status. And so uh, the the question on the table about tax exemption is, is, is one that affects a lot of Americans. Um, you propose an alternative um, in not only in cultural pluralism, but you um, uh, confident pluralism. But you you really propose an alternative um, to the way we're having this conversation. Talk about that. Well, yeah, two things there. One is you know just sticking on the point of the scope of tax exempt organizations in the charitable sector. I think one thing that is really underappreciated, and what I tried to mention in the Atlantic piece, is just how many millions and millions of people are aided by the charitable sector, and particularly religious nonprofits, which have the structure and the, and the infrastructure to help a lot of people in need. So when we see tornadoes and hurricanes and national disasters, yes, we have the government showing up. That's essential. Yes, we do have non-Christian organizations uh, and non-religious organizations, but we have a lot of religious ones and a lot of religious ones that have been around for a long time that do a lot of important work. And uh, undercutting or tying the hands of those organizations would be disastrous for uh, the people and the places in this country that most need the help. So one of the things that I suggest and generally and when we think about tax exemption and tax exempt groups is that we should look at this with a pretty, pretty brief tent and realize that this is, this is the kind of public benefit that accrues to everybody, uh, including people we like and people we don't like. And every one of us in this country could name organizations that are tax exempt that we think are doing really bad things. And some people would say that about Christian groups as well. And and Christians ought to be able to understand that and be okay with that. Part of living in the society that we have is that we're going to have to coexist with people who live with different beliefs and pursue different priorities than we do, and that we have to figure out how to work together. And one, one of the ways we work together is to recognize the benefits that help us all. It was curious to me uh, in the CNN presidential debate, a Democratic presidential uh, debate among the candidates um, earlier this week, uh, the Freedom From Religion Foundation ran an ad soliciting contributions, you know, tax deductible contributions to their organization during 
uh, during the debate. I mean, CNN sold them that time. So this is an important conversation for us to have. I mean, when we talk about people who are making an appeal for a particular worldview and a way of seeing things, either religious or expressly non-religious, um, you know, we're talking about a robust conversation here in the United States of America. The question is whether or not Christians are engaging in the conversation in a way that we can be heard or if we're just screaming. I think that's a great point. And I think part of being heard also means recognizing that not everybody is going to see Christian groups as a good thing. And, and in fact, many Christian groups have uh, have mixed records or sometimes bad records. And so part of, I think, uh, uh, Christian engagement that is humble and pursuing the kinds of values that we say we claim is owning our mistakes and recognizing that uh, even in some of our best organizations, there are there are mixed records, there's damage that's done. I think, you know, when it comes to the particular question of discrimination and exclusion of LGBTQ populations, part of the answer that Christian organizations have to give is, yes, there has been a lot of harm and damage caused by Christian groups. And uh, there is also a lot of good that these groups do and uh, not trying to make the record better than it is and not trying to suggest that there isn't harm from exclusionary practices. There's, there's, you know, there are always people inside and outside whenever you draw a line and that causes harm to some people. And I think recognizing that and naming that and then still explaining that the charitable sector has to include all kinds of different groups is going to be really important. All right, um, John, Wimmy, what, we've got time for maybe one more question. Um, when we talk about the concept of the separation of church and state, I actually think this is, um, this is where we have to figure out how to find some common ground with people with whom we disagree, uh, you know, seemingly disagree at a policy level. Um, I am going to argue that, um, that, you know, the separation of, of church and state is not to create a religion-free public sphere— but to pr- protect the rights of every person to fully express uh, whatever they, you know, whatever their view is in the public sphere. Not everybody agrees with that. How do I get that conversation going? Well, I think part of it is going to be whether you can enter the conversation with some give and take. So I'm in complete agreement that the public square should recognize all kinds of voices and perspectives, including Christian ones, and more than that, that Christians should be able to come to those discussions with with the fullness of their beliefs and not be um, constrained from saying why they believe what they believe, and they should be able to persuade others in that. On, on the other hand, I think it's important for Christians, particularly Christians who have majoritarian holds in certain localities, to recognize that being in the public square does not necessarily mean controlling public entities. So whether it's a good thing to have a prayer in a public legislature, for example, uh, you know, some Christians will like that, but but many non-Christians and non-believers will feel like that's a, an abuse of power. And so if the, if the ultimate goal is to have Christians in the public square engaging as citizens with other citizens, then there might need to be some give and take when we come to these church-state questions in terms of how far Christians should push for their level of engagement in government itself, as opposed to being citizens for whom the government uh, encourages participation in public debates. Okay. I love the way you framed that. I am probably going to have to carve that out and uh, and type it up for myself. So, uh, John and Azu, thank you. Uh, thank you so very much. John is a professor of law and religion at Washington University in St. Louis. He's the author of Confident Pluralism, Surviving and Thriving Through Deep Difference. Thank you so much for being with us today on Mornings with Carmen. Carmen, thanks for having me. Have a great day. 
You too. We'll be right back. All right, so let's consider this next minute the gossip, the gossip portion of the week. So I consider gossip good news stories that you can joyfully pass along to others, how you can talk about other people behind their backs in ways that are positive and God-glorifying and God-honoring, uh, in ways that uplift and inspire. So here's my gossip uh, story for today. Now, it comes from the Tampa Bay Times. Um, I grew up in Tampa. The Buccaneers have been my NFL team since uh, since the Buccaneers came to Tampa since they started there as a franchise. We have been Bucks fans in my family since the stadium where we watched the Bucks was really better known as the Rowdies Soccer Stadium. So the good news, uh, the good news Buccaneer story for the, the day is actually about a former Buccaneer. His name is Warwick Dunn. He has now surprised another uh, single mom with a new home. He has now built more than 170 homes in the larger Tampa Bay area, partnering with Habitat for Humanity. Uh, he considers it a pay-it-forward uh, effort in the community. And so I just wanted to celebrate that today. Habitat for Humanity, you know, buys the empty lot, and then they partner with the family, and then they partner with donors and others. Um, and Warwick Dunn partners with them. Uh, how can you partner with others today in actually bringing justice and good news and the gospel to bear in tangible ways in your own community and in the lives of people who are uh, struggling and less fortunate than you are. All right, that's my Warwick Dunn gossip story of the day. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.